0: Hey, folks, and welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for academics and graduate students who want to take their career to industry. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson. And not that long ago, I was a graduate student working in a doctoral program who was dreaming of an academic career. And fast forward a few years later, I was in the middle of that academic career after getting my PhD and realized it really wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't giving me the life that I wanted. It wasn't giving me the kind of freedom with my time, the ability to support my family financially, and it was forcing me to live away from family. And so I decided to leave academia. And that is where the whole point of this podcast started. That's where this whole conversation began, was when I decided to leave academia and Figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life because for years I've dreamed about nothing other than an academic career in research. And now here I am. It is the end of 2023, and I started this podcast a little bit over a year ago. And 2023 has been a great year in a lot of ways. I've had the opportunity to dive deep into a lot of these topics related to going industry. I've been able to chat with a lot of PhDs and graduate students who are interested in going industry as well as those who've made the transition themselves. And I've been able to complete my first group coaching program where I helped a small group of graduate students and PhD holders make the transition from academia to industry some of whom have already received job offers at this point. And I just want to take a moment to thank you as the viewer or the listener, because without people engaging in this content, without the conversations that I've had, I wouldn't have been able to get to the place to where I feel like I know where I want to go next. But before we talk about 2024, I'd like to today to talk specifically about 2023 and to celebrate some of the conversations that we've had. And so that's what I'm going to share specifically for this podcast this week. I'm going to share bits of three conversations with you all from the best, the most listened to, the most downloaded episodes of 2023. They are conversations that I had with PhDs and grad students who wanted an academic career and were in the middle of one until they decided that it was time to go industry. We will hear from a guest who was in STEM, a guest who was in the humanities, and a guest who was in the social sciences. And one of these guests was a grad student before they went industry, one was a postdoc before they went industry, and one was even a tenured professor. I'll only be sharing a sample of the conversation that I had with each one of these people, but I will put links in the description of this episode if you wanna check out the full conversation that I had with each person. And without further ado, let's get to the first conversation. So my first conversation that I'm gonna share with you is with Karen Parada, a self-proclaimed Latina in STEM. Karen became famous for her pink lab coat, and then she became famous once more for leaving her doctoral program. Here's our conversation.
1: I'm Karen and I'm a first-gen Latina in STEM, originally from the Bay Area in California. And I'm, I am guess I'm most famously known for my pink lab coat, but I am now also most famously known for the girl that quit her PhD. It's been a crazy couple of months, but it's been a long two years. And now I am actually a clinical research coordinator and recruitment specialist for the Latino and Hispanic community at my new job. And I work with ALS patients
0: and those with neuromuscular diseases. That is awesome. And you are most active on Instagram and TikTok. Is that correct?
1: Yes. uh, TikTok, not so much because I've gotten a little bit of a stage fright since quitting my PhD. But I say Instagram and TikTok are my two top
0: ones. Okay. Okay. Well, for the few people who don't already follow you, I'll have links in the description so they can click and go see your stuff. So let's let's start with the job you have now. What does a, a job like that entail?
1: Oh, my. Well, first, I'd like to start off with saying that I did not know this job or career path existed. The only STEM jobs I've really known were the traditional like academia or like biotech routes. Mm. Never did clinical research ever occur to me. Just because what I had learned in some of my public health classes, the history that comes with clinical research, a little bit problematic sometimes, or at least it has Mm. been in its origins. But I never thought I would have done this. And I kind of just came across a point in my life where I wanted something other than being in the lab. Because at that point, Being in the lab, I could do with my eyes closed, hogtied in the dark. It was fine, but I wanted something new where I could utilize my current skill set and then build on that even more in maybe a different health setting. So clinical research coordinator is pretty much the backbone of clinical research. They are your on the ground people who um, are professional researchers and really do all of the nitty gritty scheduling and patient interaction Mm. um, associated with clinical trials, both observational and interventional, where there's some kind of experimental drug being offered. So I'm kind of the backbone on the ground person that gets to interact with patients on the daily, ensure that the, not experiments, but the tests that we're conducting with our patients in order to obtain the data is being done well, it's accurate, we're doing good clinical research practice. And yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. I'm also a recruitment specialist and I get to recruit people, which is really great because I get to talk to people about science and their interest in participation in clinical research. So I get to do that and I also get to do a little bit of education, but primarily I was hired because my employer realized that they didn't have a really high Hispanic and Latino participation in our clinical research trials, even though the demographics in the area are really high in those two. And as a native Spanish speaker who is at that level in the science world, it was kind of a perfect match. So I get to engage with that community in that sense, which has always been one of my end goals for me. So I get to do that as well.
0: That's so awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. And, you know, I've I've followed your story for – six months to a year, maybe, maybe longer. I don't know. And it's so cool to see where you are in this position, but let's, let's maybe zoom out a little bit for those who don't know what got you initially interested in looking for a position like this or really any position in general.
1: Yeah. So I have a bachelor's and I have a master's, both of which were biology, public health, molecular bio related. So I would say more lab intense than anything else. And when I pursued my PhD, I kind of went that same route. When I realized I didn't want to pursue that anymore, I had looked into positions that would allow me to be in the lab still, but I realized that the ceiling that I would hit with just masters was pretty quickly. And I was just burnt out from being in the lab. And I knew that I wanted to see the work that I can do be more impactful in real life, like more tangible, something that I could see besides just like growing stuff in a Petri dish, which I find really fun and interesting. But I realized that people in labs are very much doing a very specific thing and it doesn't really go beyond that. And I wanted something that would go the extra mile. And when I looked, I was mainly looking at public health jobs because I do have a really strong public health background, and this job just kind of so, so happily popped up and it was kind of recommended to me. I had chatted with a couple of people and there were pretty positive um, reviews on being a clinical research coordinator in that it was really rewarding. Still a lot of work, but people who were in that definitely use it as a stepping stone to maybe go back into grad school, go to med school, or just directly go into the clinical research route. And it just sounded a lot different. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of why I went for it. And I didn't want to be without a job for too long. And I knew that just, you know, sitting at home wouldn't get me back into something more positive. So kind of just went for it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So that's interesting. What do you think were some of the things that really set you up well to be a great candidate for the position?
1: So, I would say having a really strong foundation in, you know, biology and just knowing how research works in general, I can say very confidently that all of the skills that I used in the lab, I use in my job, just in like different ways, like aseptic technique, definitely applies to working with patients, taking good and accurate notes in your lab notebook, definitely applies to the data that I collect in clinical research, being able to manage multiple projects at once, definitely do that here as well. So I think just having a really heavy laboratory experience definitely set me up um, for success in this job. There's obviously a lot of new stuff that I've learned, but it hasn't it's been like really nice and I feel very competent (laughs) in my job, which is great. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's great. I love that feeling. So I'm curious and we could go into it as in as much detail as you want or as little detail as you want. But so you were in a doctoral program, correct? How, how far along did you get?
1: I made it to, I made it through three full semesters and began a fourth semester and was in that fourth semester for about two weeks before I decided it was time to go.
0: Okay. And what ultimately led to you making that decision?
1: That's like, what happened is the number one question I get. And I, I don't even know if I know still, but I will start off with saying that I realized four months into my PhD program that it was not a good fit. Hmm. And it took me, an entire year to finally come to the the ultimate decision of leaving and it was not easy (laughs) and i think the most non-problematic answer was that it just wasn't a good fit it's like the nicest way i can say it and although i'm really grateful for such a great i wouldn't say great it's such a privileged experience of being able to do research and get skills and get paid for it, even if it wasn't enough. I think I'm so grateful for the experience at the end of the day because the year before, I cried to be where I was. Like, I would have sold my soul to be where yeah. I was. And I don't think anyone noticed. I kind of like mentioned it, but when I originally applied to PhD programs, I got rejected from every single program I applied to. So when this door opened up of being in the program that I ended up in – I did not waste it. I definitely took advantage of it. I did my best to make it work. But I guess what happened was, is that it just wasn't a good fit. Like the nice answer. Yeah. yeah. When I was in the middle of everything, I almost gaslit myself. Like, oh, it's not that bad. Like, it's fine. I And I think part of that was because, you know, I, for my undergrad and my master's, I went to you know, a small, a not R1 institution, it was a state school, it was super diverse. And w- what I've been told is like a smaller pond. And I had a really mm. positive experience. It was not easy. There are definitely times where I cried or I felt over- overwhelmed or that I couldn't do it, but never did I once get any kind of like treatment that made it harder than it already needed to be. And it was just, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I would say overall, it was a positive experience surrounded by people that genuinely wanted to educate and train the next generation of professional scientists, what have you. So going from a super positive experience to what I went to was shocking in the sense that like, I almost didn't even believe it. And I found Mm. every reason under the sun to justify like why I was the one that like wasn't cut out for it or that something was wrong with me and it took it took a while to like realize that although the program itself had good intentions and was definitely doing the best that they could with the available funding and resources that it had available that it just was not a good place to be for the kind of career and skill set that I wanted to get out of it and at the end of the day I'd like to say that someone I can put up with a lot. I can work long hours. I can do all of that mostly in part because I really care about what I do and I'm passionate and it's easy to, or it's easier to do those things when there's a lot of motivation behind it and when you love what you do. But the training I was getting in return for what I was putting in just did not, the math was not mathing on it and it just, it wasn't worth it. There was nothing more that I could get out of that program that I had gotten in that year and a half. And it was taking more of me than giving me anything else. And it was, it was really hard. And I think it's hard for, you know, people that are in academia and kind of like have this idea of what it's supposed to be like. They have either good experiences and they can't imagine anything else, or they have really bad experiences and they want to do something to change it. And they realize that it's just something that isn't going to change. And it's, really big slap in the face for someone who is like super passionate about what they do. I think it's really hard and really sad that it's like this cycle that I don't think is ever going to end. And you end up losing amazing researchers like ourselves from the system. And then it's really hard.
0: Yeah. The ex therapist in me is, is a little curious about something. When I think about my own journey, I I knew something wasn't going to be a good fit for me, that job. And ultimately, I said, I should be grateful. It's going to pay the bills. Maybe it'll be better than I think. And I basically just put my head down and gutted through it until I couldn't take it any longer. And it seems like that's probably not the right way to make that kind of a decision, like looking back on my own life. So for you, was there like a realization or a conversation or was there some kind of like impetus that that kind of led to thinking about what your other options might be
1: yeah i think similar to you i definitely spent a portion of time putting my head down to the point where i wouldn't speak like i was pretty quiet towards the end of it you didn't really hear me talk that much and if anyone knows me they know that I'm not the type to stay quiet and definitely very outspoken. So for me to go from being normal, super gung ho to quiet is, and was like very concerning for some of the people that were close to me and watched me. And I, you know, had kind of gotten to this point where I was just operating on rage and spite Mm. and when I, I put my mind to something, it gets done. I've only ever quit like maybe two other things in my life. So for me, it was kind of just like a, no, I want to do this and I'm capable and smart enough to be the researcher and scientist that I want to be over my dead body, is anything getting in my way? I'm not gonna let, you know, a system that is unhappy and broken get in the way of me being able to do what I want to do. Cause that has nothing to do with me. And it was just, it was, it was too heavy. It was too much. There was nothing more that I can do because I wasn't even myself at that point. Mm-hmm. And it, I, had this really vivid dream one night and I like woke up crying and I've like kind of opened this opened up about this like other people but you know in the dream this was like towards December before I left was kind of just like arguing with myself in the dream about how like no over my bed body no one's getting in the way I like looked down in the dream to see that it was my dead body and I kind of just realized that my happiness wasn't worth all of this. Like it it wasn't worth it. And I kind of just came to the conclusion that I could do the same things that I want to do in a different setting, maybe without the title in a place that's much better for me. And it wasn't easy. It was definitely very stubborn. It took a lot of talking. I mean, it took me almost a year to come to that decision. Um, But that's kind of what had happened. And I started making lists and trying to see if it was really worth it and trying to see what else was out there. And I you know, realize that there are a lot of people without doctorates that get to do what they want to do. Maybe, you know, they're not publicized as much or they don't have that title, but at the end of the day, they seemed to be in a much better place. And I think that was more important for me at the time.
0: All right. That was my conversation with Karen. Number two we have up is my chat with Joe Steubenrauch. Joe was a tenured professor of history before he decided that he wanted to change the entire trajectory of his career and move over to industry. He has a fascinating story of going from the humanities to working in tech. And I think the time and energy and the level of detail he put into making sure his career transition went well is something that anyone can appreciate. So here's my conversation with
2: Joe. I'm Joe Steubenrauch. I am a UX researcher at a large tech company that you have heard of and before that i was a history professor specializing in the late 18th and early 19th century british uh history before that went never mind edit that out we don't want to go down that rabbit hole um (laughs) (laughs) i i spent about nine years as a professor assistant and then associate professor and Mm -hmm. was the Greg. program grad program director of my department at the time that i left i spent a very long time in graduate school at indiana university uh, bloomington uh, before that and i went straight from undergrad to a long time in grad school to a full Mm. first phase of my career uh, in in academia before hitting the eject button and jumping from the regency and early victorian period to the cloud and to tech. So um, yeah. it's been a very exciting experience of reinventing my life um, fundamentally how I think about myself, what I do each day, where I live, my relationship to my work. Um, and it's been for me a, a very exciting experience. It's awesome. Where you can find me uh, on LinkedIn, please uh, connect. Mention in your connection request this podcast or something. Um, I generally accept requests, but it makes it really easy if I see that you're human. Um, And I also have a website, com, where I don't keep it that updated with content, but I have a couple articles there and ways to contact me. There,
0: Sure. Awesome. And, uh, regardless of whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, I'll have links to both Joe's LinkedIn page and website in the description. So you can scroll down and click on those. So Joe, let's start with, with what you're up to now. So you are a UX researcher. Could you tell me a little bit about what that means, what your day to day is like? the impact you have on the company, et
2: cetera? Yeah. So my job is to help a product team better understand our customers and to make decisions on behalf of those customers about what to build, what new features to add to our product, what to change about our product. So my job as a researcher is to understand the the pain points, the needs, the motivations, and the behaviors of our users. Sometimes that looks like um, really focusing in on their actual behavior with the product. How do they use the product? Or if we're rolling out a new feature, what do they make of this new feature? How do they interact with it? Um, And that's sort of I don't wanna say basic or simple, but that's on that more surface level, how someone interacts you know, with an app or in this case with a cloud service. Where do they click? Where do they expect to find some feature? Um, if you show them the main page and you say, okay, you know that this feature exists and you need to set this configuration, where do you go? Or you encounter this error message in your system. How do you troubleshoot that? Where do you start mm-hmm. looking to find out what went wrong? So that's the sort of more tactical usability study, looking at how um, our customers interact with the product. But then there's other levels of research where we will be exploring how do people do their jobs? What is their main motivation in their job? What are they trying to get done? Because when it comes down to it, the customer really isn't there to use our product most of the time at least especially my product um, in the space i'm in they're trying to get something done they're trying to make the rest of their job easier or Mm. um, to accomplish some sort of task and they're using our product or considering using our product to do that Um, and then sometimes we might even be talking to people who aren't our customer but they're the type of person who could be our customer and we're talking to them about how do you do your job Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, what are? Why do you do? Why do you do that particular task? How do you do that task? Oh, I see. So, do you have to have a workaround for that? Oh, that sounds like that's a hassle. Tell me a bit more about that. Mm. Oh, you sounded frustrated. Why is this frustrating to you? And really, sort of circling in uh, slowly to to um, kind of reconstruct their experience of their work. To one of the phrases we use, um, mental models. How do they sort of mm. make sense of? um both their work and their task, but then how our product fits into that. Um, and in that, in that way, it's a bit like um, and we use this word in UXR, ethnography uh, or anthropology, where you're really coming to an understanding of the user. There's many different types of UX research. I'm very much on the qualitative end. Um, I'm not a quantitative uh, researcher. So my research is very much on that sort of ethnography, or as a historian, what we would call cultural history, trying to um, uncover how people make sense of the world, and then, alongside that, what their needs are. Then I take all of that from observing our customers, and then I have to communicate it to engineers, uh, to product managers, to UX design, and help them then make decisions. What do we build? what do we change mm. what do we prioritize otherwise if a product team is operating in a vacuum sometimes they hit gold sometimes they make something that's exactly what a what customers need maybe they don't even know they need it yet um, but it meets these needs that they have other times um mm. And More frequently a product team will design a product for themselves because they'll imagine. Oh, I understand the user I am kind of the user. What do I want? Um, and that's you know um, Especially something, you know, we over in the humanities argue that's not actually how the w- how the world works um, People are fundamentally very very different from each other in their needs and, and how they understand products and use products and so um, the more customers you can talk to, the more you can advocate for that voice of the customer um, or many voices of the customer and the experience of the customer to the product team, the more the product team can build something for the customer um, that meets their need rather than building something that they imagine the customer wants, but it's really what they want. That was a very long des- description, but that's yeah. that's UX research.
0: Oh, no, that makes so much sense. <laughs> and um, so how did you...
2: How did you find out about UX research? So, serendipity, um, randomly. When I pivoted out of academia, I did not jump to UX research. I jumped into a field called instructional design. I can talk about that separately in in a moment if you want. I briefly, during that time while I was looking for pathways out of academia, I came across the term UX. And I, I looked at UX a little bit. It did seem like a field that academics were going into. Um, but I honestly didn't look that deeply. And what you'll find on the surface when you start looking at UX are UX design roles. There's far more design roles than there are researchers. And looking at UX design, I, I realized, oh, this is you know this is fascinating. this looks really neat. This is probably not a great fit for me. I can't see mm. myself excelling in this field. I would need to learn a lot that I don't have now. It would be a very long transition to go into UX design, and it just, it just didn't capture my interest. And many designers, and in fact originally designers, did do the research pieces well, and over time there's sort of an increasing specialization and a split where, where UX research is its own role. Um, but I just didn't really look at UX research um because i was seeing sort of mock-ups and wireframes and sort of designing the actual sort of ui of and ux is much more than the user interface but as far as i'd looked that's all i'd seen so then uh, it was after i was um in tech working as an instructional designer a uh, someone in my network who has a phd in history um, she'd gotten her phd at the same um Uh, institution i had we'd overlapped slightly though i don't think we ever had talked to each other she saw me on linkedin thought that was super interesting that i had made a jump she was working is working at google um and she's a ux researcher so she said hey we should just have a chat let's just talk about our careers Hmm. by the end of that conversation because i started asking her so what do you do oh wait like how does that work um and i was telling her about some of the work i was doing in instructional design and, and she said you should look into ux research because what you're interested in in instructional design you're asking similar questions to what we about your learners and in instructional design mm. that we ask about our our users or our customers in in ux research so it was a random networking conversation um, and i left that conversation saying oh, i want to learn more i researched on the internet. I got a couple books about UX researcher, about UX research. And within maybe two weeks, I decided um, that was right at the end of 2021. I decided 2022 will be the year of me exploring UX research and seeing if I can transition into the field. Um, and I started October 31st of, of 2022 in my UX research role. So it was a random networking conversation. That's very cool.
0: And did you stay within the same company to I did. transition to that role? Yes. You did. And that, that's a part of your story that I found very interesting. And I think you had a post on LinkedIn where you talked about that. Um, how do you think your transition would have been different if you was just were applying to a different company or if you were in academia applying straight out of a professor role? So
2: I think breaking into UX research would have been much more difficult um, for me. There are some fields where the research methods and the work that they do very clearly translates to UX research. And there it's, it's not that it's easy, but there's a more direct path and a more direct bridge. For historians, that's not the case. Um, I think... Underlying the work, there's a lot that's in common. So after I've maybe talked to, in fact, I was just doing this last week. I did the research readout um, two days ago. I had interviewed 10 different customers uh, an hour each. And so you've got that big pile of transcript. And now I'm going to bulldoze through it, pulling out insights, synthesizing what are the main stories from this like you know hundreds of pages really if if, if it was all in one transcript um mm. that's what the that you know historians know how to do that that's our bread and butter like give me several hundred pages I'll plow through it but I don't do usability studies I wasn't an oral historian I so I wasn't interviewing users I wasn't doing surveys so a lot of the basic tasks of a UX researcher I wasn't doing as a, an academic So I think if I had been applying completely from the outside, I I would have had to do much more work on my own ahead of time, building out sort of passion projects and side projects, proving that I could do this work in order to get my foot in the door. Um, Whereas internally, I was able to, in my um, instructional design role, start doing user research and legitimately to help the projects I was working on, um, because it in fact is useful to better understand how learners were going through the training materials we were creating, what their needs were, what they were trying to accomplish in their job, and how training fit into their, into their lives as employees um, of our company. And so I was able to begin doing UX research in my current role already in the tech space. And I was able to reach out to other researchers at my company, form friendships with them. Um, A couple of them begin to shadow. And then one of them who was very close nearby, like structurally, she was in my org, um, said, hey, do you want to collaborate with me on a project? Um, Mm. Because we'd had enough of of sort of a friendship and and had enough conversations at that point. Um, And she'd seen my work on my own team. I said yes. And so by the time i made the internal move i was able to say um to my new hiring manager i've already done these ux research projects at aws and some of them with actual customers actual external customers and so be already being at the company already being able to um Show work i had done and at the company in that space made all of the difference. Um, whereas if I'd been applying externally Um, I think the barrier would have been much higher and especially now in the current current market Um would have been much more difficult. And so yeah. I know I'm, I'm sort of monologuing at you here, but one thing I would encourage um Anyone listening to this? Uh is to think about their career n- not as one final jump or one final destination, um, like we do in academia, mm-hmm. but instead realize that once you step through a door into industry, many other doors open and you can begin to um, earn trust with people at your company and in turn actually at other companies who, who will see your success and in, in your first role as evidence that, okay, this person can work in industry. But it will allow you to then begin to pick up new skill sets, begin to explore, begin to use those internal connections to then grow in new ways and into careers you won't know about. Um, So again, when I accepted my role and walked away from tenure and left tenure, I didn't know the field that I'm in now existed.
0: All right. So that was my chat with Joe. And now for our final conversation for today's episode, the best of 2023, my conversation with Ashley Ruba. Ashley got a prestigious postdoc after her PhD in developmental psychology, and she tried and tried and tried to get a faculty job at an R1 institution, and eventually she left academia and transitioned to tech, where she worked as a UX researcher. She blew up on Twitter as she began sharing her transformative career story, and then she blew up again on linkedin and in my conversation with ashley she drops a lot of really great insight inspiration and practical tips for how to take your career to industry so here's my conversation with ashley
3: i'm ashley and i got my phd in developmental psychology from the university of washington three years ago and i'm currently a ux researcher at meta reality labs and what I, what I do in my free time is help other academics make a very similar career transition to what I made, and people can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn um, under under my name, Ashley Ruba, and I often post about that career transition and giving advice and resources and all of that.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And before we jump into your story, I do just want to underscore your content on LinkedIn uh, is how I found you. And I, you know, i read through a couple things and I was like, oh my God, this is so valuable. And I literally have made earmarks of things to do to my resume, things to do to my website based on some of your content. So make sure to follow Ashley on LinkedIn. I'll have a link to it in the um, description of this episode. So, but let's jump in, Ashley. Why did you originally go to grad school?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Um, so my parents didn't go to college. And so they, from the time I was really young, they always told me, you know, like, you're gonna, you're gonna go to college, like you and your sister are gonna go to college. And so there was never a question that I was at least going to get my bachelor's. But I really liked school. And I kind of just wanted to be in school forever. So even when I was a really young kid, I, I wanted to get a PhD, like I wanted to I didn't know what in, but I just wanted to be in school forever because I really liked learning. And then um, I decided that I wanted to study psychology when I kind of had the unfortunate experience when I was in high school. A friend of mine died by suicide. And so I really wanted to go into psychology, be a clinical psychologist. And so I went into undergrad. I did my bachelor's at Duke. So I went in knowing that I wanted to study psych. And I started doing research research in a developmental psychology lab that was studying infant language development, of all things, and became super fascinated by babies and how quickly babies learn language and that ultimately translated into just a love of research. Like Once I actually got into the lab and was doing research, I decided that this was actually what I was really passionate about and what I wanted to do. And then that's how I ended up doing my PhD in developmental psychology um, because I had some very specific questions surrounding how infants learn about other people's emotions that I really wanted to explore. And then that's how that's how I ended up doing a PhD and going into grad school. I really wanted to do research. And, and then I was also told that if I really liked research, then I should be a professor. So that was what I went yep. through. Basically, like 10 years of my life, like wanting to be a tenure track faculty member at an R1 um, was my career goal. Yep
0: yep uh, and how did you uh how did you describe your experience in grad school?
3: I actually had a really great experience in grad school, which maybe surprises people given that I you know talk about some of the things that are wrong with academia pretty often, but I think that's credited to. I had a really amazing graduate advisor, Betty Rafolccoli she was super super supportive and really gave me a lot of autonomy to explore these questions that I had about how babies learn about other people's emotions. And so, yeah, I had, I had a really supportive advisor, which I think is the number one thing that will make or break your grad school experience. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If you have an advisor who's not supportive, you may not make it through the program. And that's just, that's just the reality of the situation. But I really, um, I don't know. I'm like, I'm a nerd. I feel like everyone who gets a PhD is like kind of a nerd. And it was really fun to just like dig into this research topic that I found super fascinating for five years. And yeah, I learned a lot about how to conduct rigorous research and how to, you know, and and I feel like my writing was pretty solid when I got in there, but it got even better. And yeah, I had a, I had a pretty good experience overall. Um, definitely some bumps along the way, but like. A pretty good experience.
0: Yeah. When you were a grad student, did you ever consider industry as a career option or were you dead set 100% on the tenure track life?
3: Uh, I was pretty dead set on it until my fourth year of grad school when I actually sat On a faculty search committee in my department. So I saw the process from the other side. We were hiring someone for a developmental psych faculty position and seeing, you know, I think we had 150 people apply for one spot and just seeing the process of taking this, you know, the stack of amazingly talented PhDs and trying to whittle it down to 20 and then whittle it down to three and then having three people come out and then pick one. The decisions became at times arbitrary or, you know, there wasn't like everyone is just amazingly qualified. And when you get down to 20 people, you could Mm -hmm. pick any single one of these people and they would do an amazing job. And so at that point, I feel like the imposter syndrome really set in. And I was like, we, we crossed people off this list who had CVs that were better than mine. And so there's no way I'm going to get a faculty job. So then at that point, um, I was doing my PhD in Seattle and the only like, career that I really knew that people went into was EUX. Because being in Seattle, it was becoming a pretty popular career option. So I explored that a little bit. But then I ended up applying for a postdoctoral fellowship. um, And it was an NIH T32. It was the only Mm -hmm. fellowship that I applied for. And I told myself, you know, if I if I get this really prestigious fellowship, which I won't get, because like, why would I be the one to get this fellowship? Um, Then I'll take it and I'll you know keep writing this out and if i don't then i'll move into tech and then i got the fellowship and then i ended up continuing to be in academia for three more years
0: yeah very interesting um so i i think for any grad students listening who have career aspirations of being in academia sitting on a committee that goes through that selection process is so informative um I I don't think I was a student on one. I think I was was on one when I was a research scientist. But it was to actually see like the decisions that get made, and you know the things that get valued, and the amount of people who are so awesome. Um, yeah, yeah.
3: It was it was really yeah. eye opening and and yeah, it was a very very clarifying to know that. Um, and you know, I, I I applied for faculty jobs a year ago, um, and you know, didn't didn't get any interviews from that. I mean, and you can look at my CV; you can see
2: mm-hmm.
3: like <laughs> you can see what my CV looks like. And I think that's just um, it. Just speaks to how competitive the job market has become, especially after yeah. COVID. Um, and universities just aren't there; just aren't enough jobs for everyone. And so the decisions become, you know. Um, well, it can come down to maybe you're really successful, but your research area just isn't what the department's looking for. And that says nothing about your qualities as a researcher at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just, it's just a really hard field to be in. And it's kind of, it's like winning the lottery. Like you're really like gambling and trying to win the lottery in some ways. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I hope I haven't told this story on the podcast, but (laughs) early on in my, uh, Time as a PhD student before I really got an assessment of like what the job market was actually like. Uh, I had a friend who was doing a PhD in philosophy of mm-hmm. all things um, yeah. at the same institution at UGA, and his department had a open uh, lecturer position. I think it was a five five, um, oh, and it no. was paying. <laughs> it was paying like fifty five grand a year. Oh my god! And <laughs> he he either was on the selection committee as the student or his mentor was on the selection committee and like giving him information. There were over 400 applications mm-hmm. for that position and yeah. like probably half or more were well qualified. Oh, and, absolutely. um, yeah, that was the first time when I was like, oh wow, maybe this is a, a lot more competitive than I thought it would be.
3: Yeah. It's, it's competitive for sure. Um, I mean, and there's obviously like thresholds for you know i mean when we were doing the selection criteria we had some threshold for like number of first author publications that was like an initial screen um but then you know so many people pass that initial screen and then what do you end up making decisions based off of at that point um and it's you know it's just a really hard and competitive process but then there's just also a lot of really amazing phds out there doing really cool stuff and there just aren't the jobs just
0: Absolutely. don't exist. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, to not make any of our <laughs> tenure track hopeful grad students, even more squeamish, we can move on. Um, yeah. I, th- but,
3: I think, so there, you... I think there, they should be a little squeamish. I think a healthy amount of squeamishness yeah. is
0: good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I, uh, I, I've made content for a couple of years. I mostly make memes, you know, you oh. make like real serious like takeaways and all these awesome things i
3: made some memes (laughs) on twitter i feel like those were my first few like pretty popular posts were like academic memes so i i I do some memes sometimes
0: (laughs) yeah oh that's fun i like how they can communicate a lot with just like a few words yeah but um back when i was making my account i was making a lot of memes about like you know the job market sucks more than a lot of you realize it does and i had a lot of people push back on that and ask for, like, optimism, more or less. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I get, like, when you're in the trenches, like, you kind of need that optimism to, like, keep going and not give up. And I think there is a lot of value in that. But, I mean, I agree with what you said. I think at some point, you have to, like, look the devil in the face and see actually what's going on. Um, and the academic job market produces, I think, 20 PhDs for every one academic position that will ever open
3: yeah I, um, I, I believe yeah. that and I you know I'm someone who kind of more on Twitter had been accused over the past year of being too negative about academia um, and you know the job market and to being like discouraging to people but it's I mean it's just like the reality of the situation, and you know, I wish it was. I wish it was different. I really, like, I really wanted a tender track faculty job. Like, that's why I stayed in the field for ten years. That's why I worked so hard. And it's, uh yeah, it's it's hard when, like, I wish I wish universities were hiring more more faculty instead of you know adjuncts and lecturers to fill these positions. But you no, know, this is just the state of the market right now. And I mean, like you said, the positions aren't paid well either. Um, and yeah. that's also something that people have to, like, I wish we didn't have to think about money, but we do. And that's also something that's important to consider. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I make more now than I did as a research scientist for a fraction of the responsibility.
3: Oh, yeah. No, I, and, I uh, make... It was eye Yeah. Yeah. I make three times my postdoc salary now. Um, and yeah. I posted that on Twitter in September and kind of broke academic Twitter. It's definitely, like, not something that people like to talk about, but it's something that... Yeah should definitely talk about
0: more yep absolutely um so let's let's move into you you got the t32 Mm -hmm. incredibly competitive um what was your time like as a as a t32 postdoc
3: it was a weird time because i started my postdoc in september 2019 so six months before COVID happened and so I like came in. I was like super gung ho. I had all of these research plans, and I started piloting my first study in March twenty twenty two in twenty twenty. Um, so like a week before my university completely shut down operations, mm. and so I went from you know I was going to be giving invited talks at conferences and universities, and I had planned to apply for jobs in twenty twenty at the end of 2020, that was going to be my first year on the academic job market. And then COVID really just decimated like all of my plans. And I had to move all of my research online, which I had never, I was working with preschoolers at that point. So I feel like that's a whole other thing and trying to take studies that you were doing in person and moving them online with kids. And this was just a big problem that a lot of developmental psychologists were facing. Um, so I think up until that point, I was having like, a pretty good time. Um, and yeah. uh, you know like and during covid like I I published a lot of papers. Like I was able to publish all of my work from grad school. I wrote like four review papers um, and ultimately, you know, finished my postdoc with 15 first author publications because it's just what I did during covid was Damn. I just I just wrote because that was my way of like dealing with the stress of the world collapsing around me and my career. Yeah kind of collapsing around me as well. Um, but, but yeah, it was definitely really hard and super isolating because I had also just moved to Madison, Wisconsin, which I had never visited. I'd never lived in the Midwest, never even visited Madison when I moved there. So I didn't really have any friends and it was really, I mean, COVID is really hard and isolating for a lot of people, but I feel like especially mm. me having just moved, it was really hard. Um, And that was, you know, part of the reason I ended up leaving my fellowship early was I just was really, after two and a half years, was just like really unhappy and needed to do something different.
0: Yeah. All right. That was my conversation with Ashley, the last bit of this podcast. And I want to thank you for listening. Appreciate you for staying tuned. I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of plans for 2024. But I'm going to hold off with sharing them until next week. So Be sure to tune in then to hear my thoughts about 2024, and I will see you next time.